We're looking at the text in Mark when Jesus walks on water. Sometimes we wonder, you know, I've had some people ask, why are we going through the Gospel of Mark? And why are we going so slowly through the Gospel of Mark? And I've said it numerous times uh, before, but I'll, I'll reiterate it. It's, it's so that we get back to an idea of who Jesus really is, who Scripture paints him to be for us. Mark is considered by many scholars to be the first gospel written. Now, whether you, and if you consider them to be four individual accounts written separately at separate times, that's fine. Uh, but, but many people believe Mark was the, the base gospel in a sense, and Matthew and Luke read his version, and then they wrote their own after investigating, and of course, Matthew writing his own, his own version of the accounts. But we go through this so we, we understand who Jesus truly is. And as I was preparing this sermon this week, I came across this illustration from another pastor. This is not mine. Um, I'm borrowing it from him, which means I'm stealing it. Uh, but he said, the reason we study Scripture the way we do is because, in a sense, Jesus becomes like strawberries. He gave this illustration where a, a, a young man was with his son, and he was walking through a strawberry patch, and, and he saw a very ripe, delicious-looking strawberry, and he bent down, and he plucked it, and he, he took a bite of it himself, and it was delicious, and he shared it with his son, and his son claimed he'd never tasted anything as great as this strawberry. And it became their thing. And so soon, this little boy, he wanted strawberry everything. Strawberry fruit roll-ups, strawberry Pop-Tarts. And, and you know what they do with those? That's not really strawberries, right? They begin to add all these other flavors, all these other things into it. And, and as he got older, he, he got older, he got a car. He wanted a strawberry air freshener for his car. And when he got even older, he, he discovered this thing called the strawberry slushy and the strawberry snow cone. And it was amazing. And he loved the taste of strawberries. And then one day he was a father himself and they were walking through a strawberry patch and he saw a beautiful, perfect looking strawberry. It looked like it tasted so well. And he reached down and he plucked it and he took a bite of it. And it didn't taste like strawberries anymore. And so often we do that with Scripture. We have this wonderful discovery when we come to Jesus and we have this encounter and it's powerful and we, we have this reality of who he is. But the the longer we go, many times we forget what he's truly like. And so we're walking through the Gospel of Mark today, and we're continuing our walk. And I know next week, uh, Dr. Bill Hennessy is going to have a different text, but when I, I come back, we'll be back in the Gospel of Mark. And I'm, I'm loving this because you've heard me say this, your life imitates your theology. What you believe about God, what you believe about Jesus is reflected in every aspect of your life how you live for him, how you talk about him, the way you think and treat others. And so we read today in our text, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, beginning in verse 45, immediately, that's one of Mark's favorite words, he says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida. Well, he dismissed the crowd. After he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. Well into the night... The boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. He saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning, he came toward them, walking on the sea and wanting to pass by them. 
When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke with them and said, Have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. And if you remember last week, we looked at the the feeding of the 5,000. Instead, their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to shore at Gennesaret and anchored there. As they got out of the boat, people immediately recognized him. They hurried throughout the region and began to carry the sick on mats. So wherever they heard he was, wherever he went, in the villages, towns, in the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch just the end of his robe. And everyone who touched it was healed. It's important that we understand who Jesus Christ truly is. If we fail to grasp who Jesus is, we will never be able to move beyond our fear and into faith. Those who are in Christ, the Bible tells us he does not give us a spirit of fear. Those who are not in Christ, often you will find they are some of the most scared, terrified people you'll ever meet. They may not say it, they may not act like it, but in their core, They want to make sure they milk this life for as much as they can because when they die, they fear they have nothing left to offer. There are those who may believe that they are in fear of another God. Maybe like in Islam, if they don't die in jihad, according to the Quran, their God may or may not let them into heaven. Um, Mormonism, their version of Jesus, their version of God, if they do enough works, they may get into heaven. That is not the biblical Jesus. That's not who he is. When we look at Hinduism, one of their gods may just one day decide to smite them out of nowhere for no reason, just because that god's having a bad day. This goes all the way back to the Greek mythology, the, the, the gods of the Greeks and the Romans that were there when Mark was writing these words originally. To not believe in the God of the Bible is to have fear. To believe in the God of the Bible is to fear the Lord. Proverbs tells us The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but it's a different kind of fear. It's a reverent awe. It's an acknowledgement of his majesty, of his holiness, of who he truly is. And that's where we come back to if we do not grasp who Jesus Christ truly is, we will never be able to move beyond our fear and into faith. And I hope you'll forgive me this morning. My my introduction is a little longer than normal. But the events of this passage only occur in Matthew, Mark, and John. And Matthew is the one who adds the part about Peter getting out of the boat. Some of you, as I was reading, maybe you thought, didn't Peter get out of the boat at some point? He does in Matthew's account. And it's interesting that that that's the case because traditionally, church history tells us that Mark got his gospel account from Peter himself, and yet he doesn't include the fact that Peter gets out of the boat. Only Matthew does. And it's likely Peter, like John, understood the focus of this story is not Peter, it's Jesus. And so they didn't want to distract. And what we see taking place, we saw it begin especially last week. What we see taking place in the text of Mark is Jesus is is now unveiling more and more of his true identity. He's showing the disciples, those who are closest to him, the 12 men, who he is. They're still not getting it. They're not grasping it. 
until this night on the sea, and even after. His disciples are the only ones who witnessed this. Now, the next morning, John records something very significant. The crowd that had eaten, you remember Jesus had 5,000 people, 5,000 men, as many as 20 people, we learned. And those people had eaten the fish and the bread, and they came back the next morning, but they realized Jesus is gone. But they knew he hadn't gotten in the boat with the disciples. So they look for him, and they can't find him. And eventually, they they hitch a ride on some boats from Tiberias, and they, they go to Capernaum to look for him. And they meet up with Jesus, and they say in John 6, 25, hey, how'd you get here? Right? And Jesus' reply to them is actually a rebuke. He rebukes them for coming to find him this time. He basically tells them, you don't want me, you want breakfast. Because I fed you the bread and the fish, you want to come back for more food. That's, That's it. His exact words, John tells us, Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. Now they think, when he talks about this, they think he's telling them they can perform miracles. So in John 6.28, they say, what can we do to perform the works of God? And Jesus clarifies this. He tells them, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. They don't think that's enough. They begin saying, well, what other miracles are you going to do? Are you going to bring manna down from heaven like Moses did? Because they're probably still a little hungry, right? They probably still want some more food. And Jesus tells them, I am that manna from heaven. I'm the bread of life. And unless someone has me in their life, and he says something metaphorical that's kind of hard to to understand. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you, you you don't have eternal life. And ultimately, many of his disciples, not just the followers, not just the the roadies, but disciples end up getting up and leaving him because this teaching is so hard for them to understand. You notice Jesus doesn't chase them down either. And this is the point in John's text and the point of our text today where we really begin to understand Jesus is saying, if we do not grasp who Jesus truly is, We will never be able to move beyond our fear and into faith. So we have to ask that question, then who is Jesus? Well, first of all, we see in our text, Jesus is our Redeemer. Verse 45, I'll read it again, verse 45 and 46. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After he said goodbye to them, He went away to the mountain to pray. Now, you have to understand what's taking place in this text, and John clarifies what's happening. Jesus understood the 12 disciples were weak men. He understood they were tired men. If you remember the sermon last week, they had been exhausted from their own missions trip, and they come back, and and Jesus says, well, let's go away a little ways, and, and let's get together and have our company retreat type of thing. Let's relax. And, and rest and be revived. And they didn't get to because this crowd starts showing up and Jesus begins to feed them. And the disciples, along with Jesus, they'd begin helping with the people, working, feeding them. And so Jesus tells them, get in the boat and go. 
In fact, the word made is the Greek word anakesin. And it means he forced them to go. He ordered them. He strongly urged them to leave. Why the haste? Why the rush? Why the, why the firmness there? Well, John tells us that after feeding the 5,000, the crowd wants to come and make him king and rebel against Rome. John 6, 14-15 tells us, when the, when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, then Jesus realized what they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. So he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now the disciples, they would have been tempted by this. They've waited two years at this point for Jesus to rise up and be some military leader, some kind of would-be king. And now, now they've got an army of 5,000 men who are well-fed. They're ready to rumble. And Judas, of all people, would have been licking his chops at this. Let's get the party started, Jesus. Let's do it. No. Jesus says, you get out of here. Get in the boat. Go away. We are not doing that. And he dismisses the crowd. We often think of Jesus as our Redeemer because he saves us from the sins of our past. That he redeems us in our sin currently. But we also have to remember he saves us from the sins we might commit. He keeps us from sinning. That's what a Redeemer would do. He saves us from sins we might yet commit so that we don't commit them. 1 Corinthians 7.23 says, You are bought at a price. Do not become slaves of people. Jesus redeems the disciples by keeping them from taking place in this rebellion, in this potential riot. Jesus instructs them in Matthew 6.13, as he's teaching them to pray, he says, Do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He's not going to lead them into sin. He's not going to position his disciples, his followers, in a position where they might fall into sin. James reiterates this. He says, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. So he's redeeming the disciples here in a sense. He's keeping them from sin by sending them away. Now, if you notice in the text, He tells them to go to the other side, to Bethsaida. And I said last week in Luke 9.10, Luke made it clear they were at Bethsaida. So there were actually two Bethsaidas. There's Bethsaida uh, Galilee and Bethsaida Julius. Bethsaida Julius is where they were. And he's told them to go to Bethsaida Galilee. Bethsaida Julius had these mountainous ranges with plateaus on the top that would have been perfect for climbing to get away from the crowd. And once you get to the top, you've got this flat surfaced area where you can sit down and pray and seek the Lord. Of course, we've seen Jesus go up the mountain to pray before. Mark 3, when he called his disciples up the mountain, if you remember, that's what prophets do. And Jesus is not just a prophet, he is the prophet. Moses goes up the mountain, Mount Horeb, when he first speaks to God through the burning bush in Exodus 3. Elijah goes up Mount Horeb as well in 1 Kings 19. They, they go to get alone with God, to get away from the world around them. And that's what Jesus does. He goes up this mountain to pray. And then verse 47 says, Well into the night, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. He saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning, he came toward them, walking on the sea and, and wanted to pass by them. 
This ship is now in the middle of the sea. This is a fishing boat, if you remember. Probably the same boat from chapter 5. And it's only built to go a couple miles away from the coast. But yet here it is, our text says it's been tossed out into the middle of the sea. That gives us an idea of how violent this wind is, how violent the storm had become. And the disciples are struggling. Even from the shore, Jesus can see their, their problem. That tells us either he had really good eyesight or they were really flailing around, right? He's able to see them a few miles away in the dark. Maybe the, maybe the moon gave some good light. It was a starry night. We don't know. But he sees them straining. The, the Greek word Mark uses is basanizo menos. And it's actually a word that's used for torture. It's a word used for torment. Here it literally means he saw their harassment in rowing. Now, a lot gets made about this. It quickly can become a, a motivational speech more than a sermon. God sees your struggle. God sees you harassed. God sees your pain and your torment. But you know what? Motivational speech or not, he still does. He does see your pain. Jesus knew their struggle. Jesus knew they were going to struggle when he told them to get into the boat. Jesus knew they were going to have that harassment from the waves, that they were going to struggle within the boat and be tossed out into the middle of the sea. And just like that, Jesus knows your struggles. He knows your harassment in this life, your torment, your pain, your heartache. And yet Jesus lets the disciples struggle anyway. He doesn't rush in to make it better. He says he walks on the sea. He doesn't rush. They've been doing this for some time. If you remember, he sent them away at sundown. And now other, other translations say it's the fourth watch. It would be about 3 a.m. So they've been struggling this whole time, and it's about 2.33 a.m., and they have not yet reached their destination. But then Jesus becomes involved. And he sticks out his foot, and he puts it on the surface of the water, and he begins to walk. And he walks with intent to pass by. He doesn't do that because he doesn't care. He doesn't intend to pass by them and leave them as they are. Don't misunderstand this. In fact, the words used when Jesus is going to pass by, they're the same Greek words that are used in the, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint, for when God passes by. In Exodus 33, Moses says to God, Show me your glory, and God says, okay, you can't see my face, but there's this place near me, this Exodus 33, 21 and 22. You are to stand on the rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And in the Old Testament, Moses was a tortured man. He was a harassed man. He was somebody who felt very alone in the midst of his struggles. And yet he goes to God and he says, show me your glory. And God passes by. Elijah, when he feels very threatened by King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, she's got a, a warrant out for his arrest and his execution. And Elijah goes on the run. And God shows up and he says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah says, you don't understand. I'm the, I'm the only one willing to stand for you. I'm the only one willing to fight for you. I'm the only one left in all of Israel who loves you and who wants to, just, just kill me, God. I'm tired of it. I'm sick. I'm, I'm sick of the fight. He says, I've done all I can do. And God says, go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence 
at that moment, the Lord passed by. And it changes everything. I want to tell you something this morning. God does not always fix your problems. God does not always heal the sickness. God does not always calm the storm. But when you cry out to him, he is faithful to pass by and we get a glimpse of his glory. We get a glimpse of who he truly is. And that is all we need. That glimpse will will sustain you. It will refuel you, retool you because Christ has redeemed you. With his blood upon a cross, with that, empty te- with that empty tomb, he that is inside you is greater than the world around you. No words of people should trouble you. No pain of this earth can shake you, and no demon from hell can break you. Because you belong to a God who merely has to pass by, and the light of Jesus Christ eliminates the darkness around you. Most of you know me. You know I don't preach like this. I don't say these things for hype. But some of us need to remember who we are in Christ and who Christ is in us. He did not call you to be tossed by the winds. He called you to be a warrior. He called you to be a fighter. He called you to be somebody who keeps rowing in spite of the fact the boat doesn't seem to be going where you want it to go. Psalm 144 says, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for battle and my fingers for warfare. God doesn't call us to be weak. He calls us in our weakness and he makes us strong. If you're in Christ, you are an heir of the king, adopted son or daughter of the Lord of hosts. That's what Galatians 4, 7 tells us. And when the world keeps pushing you back, you stand your ground with your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's Ephesians 6, 15, that you are able to stand your ground. If we do not understand who this Jesus is, who has changed our lives, if we don't grasp the glory and the power that he holds, if he is not our true redeemer, we will never be able to move beyond our fear and into faith in him. Secondly, we see Jesus as our rescuer. Verse 49 and 50 says, When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke with them and said, Have courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Mark makes something incredibly clear here. Throughout history, people have tried to say, well, he was just wading, on, wading through the water. Jesus was just in the shallow end. Hard to do when you're in the middle of the sea, by the way, but that's, that's one of the arguments people have used. I remember when I was in high school, there was a, a theory that Jesus was walking on ice. It's summertime. Remember, he set them down in the green grass last week. He's not walking on ice. He's not walking on a sandbar. Mark takes this out and he says, no, absolutely not. He is walking on the surface of the water as if it's pavement. The disciples see him and fear grips them. They believe he's a ghost or the Greek word is phantasma, a phantom. I wouldn't blame them too much because the modern day equivalent would be you're driving down the interstate and somebody comes running alongside your car. That would freak me out too. He breaking the speed limit like I am? I don't know, but that's going to scare me. And so you notice Jesus' words. Have courage. Later in, in Mark 10, when Jesus goes to heal blind Bartimaeus, he stops and he says, call him. And they tell him, have courage. Get up. He's calling for you. Have courage. Maybe you need to hear those words today. Maybe you're in a situation and you, you feel helpless. You feel like you're being harassed. You're flailing around and you, don't, you can't 
get ahead, and you need to be told, have courage. He told the disciples in John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world, but be courageous. I have conquered the world. Then Jesus says this, have courage. But then this little phrase, ego am I. Ego am I. And back, like I referenced the Septuagint earlier, in the Hebrew, that's anihu. Have courage, I am. There's no doubt left in that boat who this man is. Or at least who he's claiming to be. In other words, Jesus is literally telling them there's no way around this. He is saying, take courage. I'm God, and I'm right here. The same phrase God tells Moses in Exodus 3. Moses gives his list of, of excuses why he can't go back to Egypt and, and all these things. God, I don't know your name. How can I tell Israel you're the God who sent me? It doesn't even make any sense. And God says, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. The I am has sent me to you. God reiterates this in Isaiah 41.4. He says, who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning. I am the Lord, the first and with the last. I am he. And again in Isaiah 43.10, you are my witnesses. This is the Lord's declaration and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am no God was formed before me. There will be none after me. I am the Lord. Besides me, there's no Savior. And I bring up Isaiah 43 because earlier in this chapter, just as Jesus told the disciples, don't be afraid, in Isaiah 43.1, this is what God says. This is what the Lord says. No one who cre- the one who cre- created you, Jacob, the one who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you, called you by your name. You are mine. He'll go on and he'll say, do not fear. And in Isaiah 43, 5, do not fear for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. The point that Jesus is making here cannot be understated. The one who commands the wind and the waves is with you. He is your rescuer. But we read on in verse 51 and 52. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. You notice this. He gets into the boat, and then the wind stops. Here in Mark's account, Jesus says nothing. He doesn't speak to the wind. He doesn't speak to the storm. He doesn't do anything but get inside with the disciples. And all the chaos stops. There is no question about who Jesus is at this point. He'd been walking on water. In the Old Testament, God walks on the sea. Job 9.8 says, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Psalm 77.19, Your way went through the sea, your path through the vast water, but your footprints were unseen. Habakkuk 3.15, You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the vast water. The idea is that the sea is chaos. In fact, many times in Scripture, when it refers to the sea or the great sea, it's referring to the Mediterranean. But the sea was a place of terror, a place of chaos. We we learned that when we went through the book of Job, or sorry, Jonah. There's no guarantee of your safety out on the water. 
And yet God walks on it as if it's a sidewalk. God walks alongside the disciples' boat, and he gets inside the boat, and the chaos becomes calm under his command. Jesus rescues the disciples from the wind and the waves. Just as he rescues us, he is our calm in the storm. Mark tells us the disciples were astounded. In fact, the, the Greek is leon ekpresan eneotos existanto kai ethamazo. In other words, if we take that literally word for word into the English, it's they excessively in themselves were amazed and marveled. This is something that the disciples are going to remember. This is shocking. Their jaws are on the floor. Their hearts are racing. They're, what is this? Who is this man? What is taking place? But they don't get it because their hearts are hardened. They don't understand it. They didn't understand what it meant when he fed the 5,000. The hardness of heart does not necessarily equate dullness of mind. It's not that they didn't want to understand it. It's not that just that they missed the point. It's that they didn't want to get it because they rejected the truth of it. When we see hardened hearts in Scripture, it's often associated with rebellion. Paul, speaking of unrepentant Gentiles, said they darkened in their, under, they are darkened in their understanding excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. The writer of Hebrews, as he quotes Psalm 95, he says, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. And he's referring to the waters of Meribah when the people of Israel hardened their hearts towards God and they wanted to stone Moses. The disciples' hearts were hardened Either it's from their own selfish ambition, maybe their own lack of sleep, or their frustration with the weather, we're not told. But there's some spark of rebellion within their hearts that night, and yet Jesus still comes alongside, and he still rescues them, and he's still there to calm the storm. In the same way, there may very well be a storm in your life. You're like the disciples, and you're, you're rowing, and you're rowing, and you're pushing against it, and God is passing by and His glory is visible, whether the storm gets calm or not, is your heart hardened? Let Him into your life. Let Him into the boat. The storm may not stop, but you will have God with you. The sad fact is, there are a lot of people who don't want to be rescued. There are a lot of people who like the chaos. They enjoy the turmoil because it gives them attention. They like the pity. They like the drama. They love the chaos. And they won't let Christ truly in because they think they're fine, but yet they will crash and they will drown because of the hardness of their own heart. Ultimately, what it comes down to is there are two types of people in this life. There are those who are in Christ and those who rebel against him. That's it. doesn't matter if you're black, white, Latino, Asian, male, female, tall, fat, skinny, short. You're either someone who has called out to God, repented of your sins, and followed Christ, or you're on the path to hell, period. There is no in-between. And if we do not grasp who Jesus Christ truly is, if he is not our rescuer, we will never be able to move beyond our fear and into faith in him. Finally, Jesus is our restorer. He restores us. 
In verse 53, it says, When they had crossed over, they came to shore at Gennesaret and anchored there. This passage is very short, but it gives us incredible insight into what's taken place. The wind had not only taken the boat far out to sea, it had knocked them completely off their trajectory. They'd missed their mark. They'd missed where they were supposed to end up at. It took them far enough away from the shore that if real disaster hit, they could not swim and be safe. Knocked them off course. In fact, they're now about 5 to 10 miles further north than they had originally intended to be. And if I could share something with you this morning, that happens a lot of times to us. We believe God tells us to go in a certain direction, to do a certain thing, and we end up completely off course. Gennesaret, by the way, it's not even really a town. It's just a strip of land between Tiberias and Capernaum. Capernaum. Now, basically, they are anchored in the wrong place. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have felt anchored in the wrong place at times in your life? I know I have. When my wife and I, we lived in Bismarck for two years. We lived in, on the west side of Indianapolis for eight and a half years and honestly, never really fit in anywhere. I think the only reason I felt comfortable living in Valley City was half the time I lived there, I was hoping to come here. We always kind of just stuck out. In, in Indy, I was usually the only white guy amongst my friends. And, and in Bismarck, I was the only guy who didn't like hockey and wasn't that thrilled about going to the bar after work and things like that. And so when we got to Valley City, I just decided to keep to myself. And I'd hide out in the gym and at work, and that was my life. And if you know me, you know that's not really my personality. I told Jennifer the other day, I said, you know, Lisbon is the first place we've been since we were first married, that feels like home. See, we got anchored in the wrong place, it felt like, many times. We got blown off course. But Christ always brought us back on track. And it doesn't matter how far off course we go in our life, Christ always is calling us back. He's always saying, let me into the boat. Because you may end up anchored at a place you didn't mean to be, but if he's with you, it doesn't matter. He's where he has, you're where he has you. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not rely on your own understanding and all your ways know him, and he will make your paths straight. The disciples had gotten off course, but Christ knew their path, and he took them where he wanted them. Verses 54 and 55 read, As they got out of the boat, people immediately recognized him. They hurried throughout that region and began to carry the sick on mats, to wherever they heard he was, immediately they recognize him. Now remember, Jesus is two years into his ministry at this point, and this is kind of a, a callback to what Pastor Calvin had preached a couple of weeks ago. Uh, King Herod heard about it because Jesus had, Jesus's name had become so well known. Jesus is a very popular person at this time. But they don't know the real Jesus. In fact, if we take John's gospel and and tie it into this account, we know he's about to lose a lot of people when they find out what they have to do to be his disciple. Jesus can't get away from the crowds, though. He can't go and slip away like he did back in chapter 1 when he, when he healed Peter's mother-in-law and slipped, slipped away through the night to be alone. Every time someone sees him, they recognize him, and they go get everyone who's sick, everyone who's hurting, and they take them Everyone who's in need, they run to Jesus. 
In fact, you could read that. Everyone whose life had been taken off course by pain, by illness, they come to Jesus. And he not only heals them, he teaches them. He loves them. He speaks to their truest need. The same message he has preached since the very beginning. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Those who come to him, they're also like sheep without a shepherd like we saw last week. But he's the good shepherd. He's going to make their path straight. He's going to restore them. He'll help their life get back on track. If in no other way, spiritually, they'll be made right through him. Just as we are made right through him, through his cross before God. Verse 56 says, Wherever he went into villages, towns, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch just the end of his robe. And everyone who touched it was healed. There's an area within these towns called the Agora, and it's like the city square. Now on the Sabbath, Jesus would likely go and he would preach and teach in the Sabbath. But through the week, he would find himself in the marketplace. And this Agora was the place where news was exchanged and and goods were sold and gossip was shared and, and things of that nature. But also speeches were given. Preachers would preach and teach. So when Jesus wasn't in the village synagogue, he could be found in the Agora in this open marketplace. And people would meet him there. And we know, just from this text, we've seen how his reputation has spread. People come and just want to touch the edge of his robe and be healed. Where have we seen that before? Back in chapter 5, having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. The woman with the issue of blood. That story is beginning to make the rounds. People are beginning to get an idea about Jesus. They don't know him truthfully yet but they're getting to know him. And they drag people on mats, and as they did that, I imagine they're remembering a story of friends who got their other friend who was paralyzed, and they put him on a mat, and they, they had to lower him through the ceiling, and, and Jesus sees him, and first thing out of his mouth, he says, your sins are forgiven. Only God does that. Doctors, medications, even some pagan practices have the ability to heal people, but only God restores us from the consequences of our sin. Jesus is our restorer, and he proves it as he lays down his life as an atonement for our rebellion, for our sin. Ambrose of Milan, around the 300s, he wrote, The Lord of hosts was not signaling weakness as he gave sight to the blind, made the crooked to stand upright, raised the dead to life, anticipated the effects of medicine at our prayers, and cured those who sought after him. Those who merely touched the fringe of his robe were healed. Surely you did not think it was some divine weakness, you speculators, when you saw him wounded. Indeed, there were wounds that pierced his body, but they did not demonstrate weakness but strength. For from these wounds flowed life to all, from the one who who was the life of all. Christ restores us. What sin, what shame, what rebellion has taken from our lives, he gives us something better. He gives us himself. And if we don't understand that, if we don't grasp who Jesus truly is, if he doesn't restore us, if he doesn't redeem us, if he doesn't rescue us, we're never going to be able to move beyond fear and into faith. We'll never be able to turn our confusion into confession, and we'll never be able to turn our worry into worship. I'm going to move to close in just a minute, but 
Truth is, there are many people who want Jesus for the wrong reasons. They want to feel good. They want their treasures on earth. They don't want their treasures stored up in heaven. As Christians, we don't live for this world. But that doesn't mean we're not a part of this world. We do have to live here. Those of you who know me know I'm a kind of a, a geek and think of the superhero movie where the guy says, why do you want to save this planet? I don't know because my stuff is all there. We do have to live here. And while we're here, it becomes messy. And we experience chaos. And we push back against the wind and the waves. And if we aren't careful, we will miss it when God's glory passes by. And we will miss the glimpse of who He truly is. Because He's doing something in the middle of the wind. He's doing something in the waves. And He's right there. Let Him into the boat. Let Him lead. Let Him make the path straight. We do not understand or grasp who Jesus is, we will miss out on all who he is and all he has to offer us. All the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, the list goes on. And that's the key, isn't it? Is he Lord of your life? Is he the center of your life? Is he your redeemer, your rescuer, your restorer? Is he Lord? Because when he's Lord, that's when those fruit of the Spirit begin to seep out of us. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, once said, Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds, to make stars. They'll allow him to be in his treasury, to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. They'll allow him to sustain the earth and bear up its pillars, or light the lamps of heaven, or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures then gnash their teeth. And when we proclaim and enthrone God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we are ridiculed, and then it is that man turns a deaf ear to us, for God on his throne is not the God they love. They love him anywhere better than they do when he sits with his scepter in his hand and his crown upon his head. So I'll ask you today, is Christ Lord of your life? You ever notice Matthew 26, last thing, Matthew 26, and actually throughout the entire Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the disciples at one point called Jesus Lord, except one. Jesus tells them, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And all of his disciples say, is it I, Lord, except one? All of them worship him at one point as Lord, except one. And Judas says, is it I, Rabbi? Later in the garden, Judas greets him with a kiss and he says, greetings, Rabbi. You see, Jesus was fine for Judas as long as he was a teacher. As long as he was a military leader. As long as he was a a revolutionary, that's great. But he was never Lord. That's the key. I'll ask you again, is Jesus truly Lord of your life? Will you stand with me as we close in prayer? If you're here and you're saying, you know what? He's not Lord of my life. He's not my king. I don't, I don't recognize that, but I want to. I want to believe that. I need what you're talking about. Maybe you're here and you're frustrated with life and you're saying, I need Jesus to come to my rescue.
I need him to redeem me. I need him to restore me. Maybe you, maybe you have had a life of faith, but you've fallen out of it. You've fallen away from it. Today's a day to be restored. And I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or, or step out and come forward. I would just ask you to do this one thing. Grab the hand of the person next to you, if that's you, and ask him to pray with you. Just say, hey, he's talking about me, and I trust you. Will you pray with me? But I ask you this one thing. I plead with you. Do not leave this room today without Christ as Lord of your life. Father God, we come before you today and we just, you see the chaos, you see the turmoil, you see the stress, you see the depression, you see the, the weight of guilt. And yet with your nail-scarred hands, you peel back those layers and you say, be free. Don't be afraid, I am. You are God. You are Lord. Father, today for those, maybe, maybe this is the hardest decision, the hardest commitment ever in their life they've ever had to make. And Father, we understand that. Pray you give them courage. For those watching online, we just ask, Father God, that you speak to their heart. Holy Spirit, you minister in this room. Word says, you will draw all men unto you. And so we trust you, Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Jesus. Amen.